Welcome to the Blue Ridge Church. Um, um, we actually get to wind down today uh, in the book of Ephesians. We get a, we're, heading, we're heading toward the end, the home stretch here. So if you want to hop over to Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we'll pick up uh, for today. Uh, in 490 BC, in, in ancient times, there was a, an empire that they called the king of this empire the king of the four corners of the earth. And it was the, the largest empire at the time. Uh, it was gigantic. It stretched from the Asian steppes, basically modern day, uh, you know, all the, all the stands there. Um, it was, you know, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, all, stretched from there down to sub-Saharan Africa, up over to Thrace or modern day Turkey. And this, this empire was led by someone who's mentioned in the Bible, Darius or Darius, and this is a gigantic force. And this force descends upon a little, a little nation, a little, uh, you know, uh, a little nation full of city-states called Greece. And they land in a place called, called Marathon. And we know about Marathon because, that's where we get the word Marathon, because the Athenians, once they heard of the Persians arriving, they sent a runner. Why he didn't have a horse, we don't know. But he ran. He ran all the way in record time to go tell the Spartans that they need help. But the Spartans weren't going to get there in time at Marathon. Uh, and the Athenians, though much smaller in size, in terms of number, uh, had to hold off uh, a thousand nations of the Persian Empire. I mean, it's massive. Um, we have things written by Herodotus, things like, uh, you know, that, that the numbers were so massive they drink the rivers dry and their arrows will block out the sun. And of course, the, the Greeks were great. They were known for being very laconic you know, in, these, in their responses. And they, it's, it's recorded as that they, they responded to that as, well, good, because we like fighting in the shade. You know, they, that, was the, that was the Greeks. That was the Greeks. They, were, they had these one-liners, which were awesome. And, and so as, uh, as the Persians line up at Marathon and later at, you know, to attack Sparta at Thermopylae, both uh, forces of the Greeks were vastly, vastly, vastly outnumbered. Uh, these, these Persians were known, they, they were very good with, with one, wep, uh, one use uh, of one piece of a weaponry, uh, the bow and arrow. They were very good with the bow and arrow. They had learned that from the, the uh, Asian steppe peoples. And so they were very good. And sometimes half their forces would be guys shooting arrows just from the back. And they were very good at distance fighting. But the Greeks didn't like this. They didn't consider it manly to fight with a bow and arrow. Uh, they fought in close hand-to-hand combat. But, but the Persians had these huge numbers. And as a, a, thousand, a thousand nations, we, we don't know how many. We, we have huge numbers. I mean, some people say a million. It probably wasn't a million Persians, but it was a lot. Probably five to one odds as they descend upon the Greeks. And I, I love that. I talk about things like this. I get, I get inspired. I get excited. I think of things like Henry V, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers any man that bleed with me this day shall be my brother. You know, I think of that and I get excited. I love, I love this stuff. You know, this, this, this stuff, this is manly, you know, fighting uh, is good. I, I get excited about it. And as one of the famous lines written down by Herodotus that, that the Persians said as they, they approached the Spartans at Thermopylae was uh, they yelled, Spartans, lay down your weapons. And the Spartans returned back, come and get them. Uh, and so... The title of my lesson today is Come and Get Them. Come and Get Them. Oh, thanks. I'm going to be, you know, pretty animated today. I got my water. But, 
You know, come, come and get them, putting on the full armor of God. Now, the Greeks were well known for this. They were vastly outnumbered, as I've mentioned. But one of the things about the Greeks, mentioned by historian Victor Davis Hansen, quote, for nearly 300 years, from 650 to 350 BC, no foreign army, despite any numerical superiority, withstood the charge of a Greek phalanx. This is a phalanx here. A phalanx was the Greek way of fighting. It was you fought shoulder to shoulder as a tight unit. Uh, you, you stood next to each other and you, your strength was not in your numbers, but your strength was in your submission to the plan. Everyone working together. Uh, coming together and working as a phalanx. And you can see how the first three rows of the ranks put their, these long seven, eight foot spears forward. So you have, it's a pincushion. You have all those layers of spears and then you have the ones in the back ready, ready to go. But you're all holding shields that also protect the guy next to you. And so a Greek phalanx was only as strong as its weakest link. If you could, if you could get a, a part of the phalanx to disband or someone to run off and expose themselves, we think of fighting today and we like the idea of that one solo fighter, you know. Think of like a Jedi in Star Wars. He's like by himself fighting off hundreds of people. We like that because Western civilization kind of exalts the individual. We like the individual. But you would have never done that back then because you would have died. You would have exposed yourself. You would have exposed yourself. But here, they're, they're, they're not exposed. They're protected. And they're, they're, their main prerogative, their job is to be reliable, um, to be resilient. Because it's not just their lives at stake, but it's those around them. That if one part of the phalanx is exposed, the whole thing crumbles. And the Greeks trusted in this. And so to go on in the quote, for nearly 300 years, no foreign army, despite any numerical superiority, withstood the charge of a Greek phalanx. Relatively small numbers, relatively small numbers of well-led and heavily armed Greeks had no problem breaking through the ranks of their adversaries from the east. One of the things about the, the Persians, they, they had huge numbers, but they didn't wear armor. They didn't wear a lot of armor. They were kind of known for this because they, they were bowmen. They had bows. They expected pretty much to kill you from afar, and they would retreat, and they would engage. But they didn't want to get. They, they weren't going to win in hand-to-hand combat. They wanted to stay at a distance, but their job, they were bowmen. And so the Greeks were, were smaller in size, but they, they, they had a system. They stuck to it, uh, and they were interested in protecting themselves and each other as those things were not mutually exclusive by any means. But any good enemy would have one goal, one tactic. Isolate just one person. Expose a part of the phalanx. Get the Greeks to be divisive. Get them to be disunified. Get them, get, expose a part of it and the rest will crumble like dominoes. The phalanx is only as strong as the weakest link. This is not different than Satan's attack on us. And as Paul has just finished writing this, this whole book of Ephesians, he spent three chapters in the beginning basically reminding the church that we have a God who is gracious. We have a God who is going to forgive. We have a God who's chosen us despite our many, many, many sins. And then he begins to, to, to tell us, verse four, uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6, but hey, but your behavior matters. Don't let that grace get you... You know, gets you all off in la-la land. You need to actually live a life after God's own heart. You need to, your behavior does have consequences. And to know God, to know grace, is to live in the light. And then he ends the book like this. You can, you can almost feel Paul. He's writing this book probably in the Roman prison as he awaits meeting Caesar. 
he's writing this book in prison as he awaits to meet Caesar. Imagine you're, you're arrested, you know, uh, by the American government. Hopefully we're not too, you know, too close to this happening. But you're arrested by the American government. And if it was a few years ago, it would have been President Obama. Now it's President Trump. But you're about to see the president. And you're, but you're writing a letter to the church. You know, you're trying to help him. This is where Paul is. This is Paul's situation. And you can almost feel him pleading with the church in Ephesus here in verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The literal here is finally be, be strong in the strength of the Lord. Be strong in his strength. Be strong in his strength. I think one of our problems is that we try to be strong in our strength. And it would have been easy in a Greek phalanx to think, I got this. I'm going to go take out you know, a bunch of Persians on my own. Have you seen me? I'm pretty good. I'm, a bi- I'm kind of a big deal. You probably heard of me. And one of the ways that Satan can get us isolated is through our arrogance. Uh, Satan wants to get one part of the phalanx arrogant so they can run off on their own, isolate themselves, uh, and then he can get them. Then they're exposed. Then they're vulnerable. And then Satan can get them. And then just like the Persians, to isolate part of the group and then to attack. And I think we've got, we got to realize that what, that's, that's one of the ways that he'll do his work. We've got to put on his strength. Uh, the other way is probably not through our arrogance, but through our insecurity. We can think, I'm no good. I'm, just, I'm not going to help this phalanx. I'm not good enough. Um, you know, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to hold my shield up, or I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. That also exposes. So either way, whether you feel like you have more insecurity or more arrogance, a lot of us have both just in different areas of our life. Those are Satan's primary ways to disunify the church. And so Paul knows this, and as Paul's about to end his letter, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the panoply of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. You know, you really only had one job in the phalanx. Stand firm. Stand firm. They don't have armor that you got. You have the armor. Stand firm. Don't be, you don't got to be a hero. You don't got to go out there and try to look good and have a great spotless reputation. Just stand there. Yeah. Let the armor do the work. Yeah. Trust in the system. Trust in the phalanx. It's, it's not your strength. It's the strength of the phalanx, also the strength of the group. Verse 14. Stand firm then. I love this. This is all Isaiah 59. Stand firm then with the belt buckle of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions 
with all kinds of prayers and all kinds of requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me. (laughs) I love this. Pray for me because I'm in prison. (laughs) Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. He knows he's about to speak up to Caesar. And he's like, guys, pray also for me because I'm about to reach out to the whole world, a.k.a. Caesar. I'm about to pray for me, help me out. But what's going on here with this armor stuff? There's a lot here I would love to do like a 10-part series, you know, on like the shield of faith and the belt buckle of truth and, and uh, all that. It's good stuff. I, I would like to. I think there's a, there's a, I can't. Don't tempt me. Either. Don't tempt me. Uh, there's like a, there's a lot of exhaustive books on it. But I think that the, the idea here is to put on the full armor. That it has to be the full armor. It has to be the full armor because you don't want anything exposed. You want to have the, the feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. I think what's, what's awesome about the feet, you know, your feet being fitted with the readiness of the gospel uh, is that the gospel actually puts us on solid ground, what we're dealing with. I, I love that idea that the gospel is our solid ground. The, the breastplate uh, is important, right? The helmet of salvation, the sword that uh, is the spirit, all these aspects of, uh, of armor. He says, put it all on, put the full armor. It's both active and passive. You got to put it on, but it's not your strength. It's up to you to put it on, but it's not you that's going to be doing the saving. And so that, that, that's what we always see with, with, with grace, but also our behavior. Is that we we got to do something. we got to show up. we got to stand firm. we got to put on his armor. But it's not us that's going to deliver us. It's not, not us that's going to cause the victory. But I want to talk about what's going to get in the way of us putting on this armor. What's going what's to stand in the way? And, and you know what it is? It's those flaming arrows of the evil one. It's Satan, it's those Persians, sorry for any Persians in the room, it's those Persians shooting those flaming arrows. They, they would have done this. They, the Persians would have shot arrows at the Greeks. That was their idea, to, to, to disunify them. And here's Satan shooting these flaming arrows to disunify us in the same way. And a flaming arrow is kind of like going to get worse because you shoot it in the air, that, the wind just going to make it bigger, bigger, bigger. The flame gets bigger. And then when it hits your wooden shield, it's kind of supposed to eat up the shield and this will cause you to drop your shield, and then you're exposed. Or somebody else, or it, hit, you know, it hits part of your armor, which you discard, now you're exposed. The whole, Satan wants the armor to come off. Yeah. Because here's the thing. A small group of well-led and equipped people will never lose. Doesn't matter how many of us there are. It matters. Are we putting on the armor? And are we standing shoulder to shoulder? That's what matters. Satan cannot beat us if that's the case. So he wants, to, he wants to get the armor off. He wants to shoot the flaming arrows. As we think about that, Satan's attacks. What are Satan's attacks? And Paul gives us an, uh, an insight here. He says it's not flesh and blood. It's not, it's not, we don't fight the way the world does. We don't fight those fights. You know? we don't, we're, not, we're not talking about actually murdering somebody here. All right? he's, he's, he's got to clarify that in case someone in the church is like, oh, well, no, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about physical violence. This is a different kind of fight. And it's a fight that takes place in our minds and in our hearts. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, You think about 2 Corinthians 10.4. It says, we do not wage war as the world does. But we take captive every 
thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's how we wage war. We've got to deal with our thoughts. Our thoughts. Which is incredibly difficult because I can kind of feel like, well, I, I, I thought it, but I didn't do it. And, you know, I, that's what I think, but I didn't do anything. It's not so bad because it's my thought. And Jesus does this, right, in Matthew 5 with all the Ten Commandments. He's like, you've heard it was said, don't murder, but I say don't be angry. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I say don't lust. This is not about your actions. If the inside of the cup is clean, that's what matters. We're too busy trying to clean the outside. And so the internal is very, very crucial. Our hearts, our minds. Colossians 3.1 says, set your hearts and your minds on things above. To, to, to deal with sin at the, at the heart level, at the mind level, is where we're going to start to see victory and maturity. And, and, and then we can be resilient and reliable like the, like the Greek phalanx was. Uh, if, if we can begin to deal with our thoughts and our desires. Another passage is James 1.5. It talks about sin, right? And it says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus didn't sin, right? So we can think, oh, I was tempted. Well, good, you know, you're not in sin yet. Don't give in to the temptation. Temptation's there. But after desire has conceived, you know, God wants to deal with our desires. Uh, the word lust, we often think of lust as like sexual, and it has those connotations. But the word lust just means to desire, to covet. You know, our lusts, our desires. What do you, what do you desire? What do you want in life? What is crucial to your happiness? If taken away, what would do, you know, do the most damage to your happiness? What in your life do you desire? Those are the things that Satan wants to attack. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's a little flow chart there. Just because we're, we have desire doesn't mean we're in sin. Amen. A lot of, we all have desires, but, but what are those desires? What are those thoughts? And can we take them captive and make it obedient to Christ? This is where Satan can win the battle. It's how we think, how we feel. That's where we win the battle. And I know I'm really bad at this. This happens a lot. I think mostly with, generally with guys. I'm sure it happens with, 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 with women too. But you ask somebody how you feel and they're like, um, well, you know, I'll get it done. Well, how do you feel about it? No, I'll, I'll get it done. You know, I'm not asking that. I'm asking how you feel. Like, I don't know. I just, I'll, I'll do it. I'm not asking that. And, and we, can, we, have, we struggle to know how we feel. We don't think it matters. Or, we, or we, we just try to busy ourselves with other distractions so we don't have to get deep. Because a lot of us, for a lot of us, depth is, is painful. It brings up memories. Uh, I appreciated the vulnerability earlier uh, from Brittany and Brianna. But yeah, she's like, I didn't like what I saw. When the light exposed. That's what light does, right? God is light. God's going to expose. If there's no exposure, God's not present. So let's be encouraged by that. God is light. God, there's going to be exposure. Uh, but but we, gotta, we live in a world of instant gratification. I actually still remember having to, uh, when I was a kid in school, do projects and go grab an encyclopedia with the letter on it. It's like A, B, C. S and T were huge, you know. It was like... Um, People probably still don't remember that, right? You just, you, just, you just Google it. You can find out anything you want. I remember having a debate on like, who like, had the most stolen bases on the Baltimore Orioles, and you just had to like, let it die because you didn't know the answer. And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> guess we'll never know, you know? But now it's like, I got you, you know. Oh, it was Brooks Robinson. I don't know if that's true, but maybe it was Brooks. But, but it's one of those things where like, we, we live in instant gratification, 
And we can think, and Satan wants us to think all pain is bad. But we know that. Anybody who exercises knows that all pain is not bad. It's, it's good for me. It's healthy. Any of us who've had to, I, I, I uh, broke my collarbone once and, it, and it, re, it rehealed the wrong way. And the doctor didn't tell me that he was going to re-break it. Um, it's Tex, that's Texas justice, you know. Uh, he, he put his knee in my back and pulled on back and he, he re-broke it. And he was like, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, you know, you'd be... And this, he gave me the brace and he refit it. And, and it was very painful. I was like fighting back tears. I was like, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. But he, you know, but he, he knew, like, I got to do this. This is going to be painful, but you don't, you don't want to be this the rest of your life. You know, you, this, is, this is a good kind of pain. This is, and, and Satan wants us to lose this battle. Let's take a look at how Jesus responded to temptation in Matthew chapter 4. A lot of times we fall into uh, this thinking that if I do what God wants, I'll get what I want. And then sometimes that doesn't happen and we begin to struggle in our faith because we're not getting what we want from God. God is a means to our end. And this happens so much, right? And and it's easy to think of Christianity as an after-school activity. But it's, it's an identification. It's not a definition. We, you know, we're not defined by it. Now, Jesus is baptized in, in, in Matthew chapter 3. My first point is put on his armor. My first point is put on his armor. Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3, verse 17. It says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus had lived a perfect life. He had gone to get baptized by John. And God even says out loud, this is my son. I love him. And I'm pleased with him. The next sentence, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait, what? Hold on. Jesus is perfect. He hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, God loves him. And the next sentence is pretty much, therefore, God sent him to be tempted. But we don't like to think about it that way. There's a great, a great quote um, here about how we, think about how we think about evil. It says, The Western world has largely rejected this dimension of evil that the Bible gives us. And as a result, we, like Job's friends, are always underestimating and sometimes misdiagnosing the power of evil in our lives. For example, deep down, we cling to the simplistic idea that if we are good, life will go well. Yet, if there are demonic forces, it stands to reason that true goodness and godliness would actually attract and stir up those powers to attack us. And that is just what we see here in the baptism and temptation account of Christ in Matthew 4. We think, oh, it's, it's, it's all going to get easier, but it actually stands to reason if, the, if there is a, a evil dimension, then they actually would probably want to attack us, us most of all. And so Jesus, the second after he gets baptized, I know for us, I've shared the story about myself. I got baptized uh, February 21st, 2003 uh, on a Friday. On Monday, the most popular girl in school, Sarah Mercer, tried to talk to me. Not only did she try to talk to me, that would have been enough. This was Sarah Mercer, okay? She started, she went behind me and started to give me a back massage. Yeah, I know. That's very aggressive. She's never said a word to me ever in, in, in this, you know, in, in eighth grade. 
But here she is. All I'm thinking the whole time is, Satan's coming, Satan's coming, he's coming for me, you know? I just got baptized, he's throwing Sarah Mercer at me, you know? He's, this, is, this is his flaming arrow. This is the big gun, you know? And, and, and it, you know, it was, it was, it was tempting, but I'll, this is Jesus. After he gets baptized, there's the temptation right away. He's led into the desert to be tempted. And we need to know our enemy. Sun Tzu said, if you know your enemy, you don't need to fear the result of a thousand battles. You've got to know your enemy, right? You've got to know your enemy. And sometimes when we don't know our enemy, we're likely to underestimate to them and lose to them in battle. When the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, it talks about temptation, it's almost always battle language. Temptation is a battle. We felt that. You recognize this, oh my goodness, here's the situation, here's how I'm feeling. I'm tempted. And uh, some of us who are not Christians yet, we haven't, you know, we haven't been taught how to think that way yet, or we haven't been taught by Christ yet. I feel like more and more I see that. This is how I could act. You know, this is what I could do. This is how I could respond in anger or jealousy or revenge. But, but should I? And it's a battle. The flaming arrows are coming. And if we know our enemy, we know what his goal is to disunify, to cause us to be either insecure or, insecure or arrogant. We're able to actually be stronger against those battles. Now, let's see how Jesus actually defended himself against these temptations. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2 of chapter 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement, I think. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation is about desire or luxury or comfortability. For a lot of us, we have an, an idol of comfortability, an idol of luxury, um, whether it's through media, uh, an app, through TV, through YouTube, through internet, whatever, through wanting to feel a certain way. We have a, an idol of luxury. The first attack with Satan to Jesus is an idol of luxury. Hey, you're hungry. You should eat. And he challenges Christ. And Christ responds there with the scripture. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, oh, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Second time around, Satan realizes, hey, I, got, I can use scripture too. Just because someone or just because scripture is involved in a situation, does that mean it's godly? Right. It's very easy to twist scripture. Satan's been doing it for a long time. Yeah. So here's Satan trying to twist scripture to get Jesus to test his faith. And here's, here's insecurity. Will God really protect you? He's challenging Jesus. Will God really protect you? You might be single the rest of your life and never find that husband you want so badly. Is God really looking out for you? Is God really protecting you? You know, you may never get paid more than you're getting paid now. You, you know, your sickness may never get better. You may always be sick. You may always have this tragedy in your life. Is God really looking out for you? And, and Satan wants to sow that seed of doubt. He wants to cause Christ to be insecure. Does God really have your back? Because all these good things that everyone else has, ostensibly, you don't have. Does God really love you? Does God really got your back? Because it doesn't seem like it. And we're very good at knowing all the negative things in our lives so that we can we actually allow, we give Satan a foothold. And like Jesus says in Mark 2, why are you entertaining evil thoughts? Stop entertaining them. 
Because you entertain Satan, he's going to get a foothold. And he's going to do some damage. But Jesus responds, hey, listen, I know scriptures too. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Devil's pretty persistent. You see this? He's hanging in there. Took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. You know, Ephesians 6 says that we have the sword of God, which is the, sword, the, word, the word of God, which is our sword. And it says, which is the spirit. We've been talking this year about how to be equipped by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a difference between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Anybody could have the spirit poured out on them. But a disciple, someone who repents, someone who has faith, someone who's baptized, has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that when temptation comes for Jesus, he's equipped to, to, to take on, I'm going to skip that one. He's equipped to take on Satan. He's got the armor on so that once Satan comes, hey, what about this desire, this luxury you want, or that comfortability you, you crave? Jesus responds with a scripture. When temptation comes, he responds with truth. I know you're trying to make me doubt, but this is what the Bible says. This is truth. That is not true. Expose the lie. Then he comes and starts, does God really care about you? Here's a scripture. You know, let me try to mess with your doctrine here with a little bit, with a little bit of scripture. Jesus says, no, you're twisting that. You know, it's a good challenge for us. We can't just know scripture. We've got to know what the scripture means. We might know scripture. You might know the whole Bible and go to hell. So, you know, the Pharisees knew the whole, memorized the Torah, memorized the first five books of the Bible. But Jesus wasn't super fond of the Pharisees. It's an understatement. So for us, we can't just know the scripture. We've got to know what it means. And a lot of times, I, I struggle to know what a scripture means unless I have help from the phalanx. Amen. I have help from the group. But Jesus was equipped with scripture. And, and when we look at a scripture like 1 Timothy 4.16, uh, or sorry, rather, 2 Timothy 3.16, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word of God equips us for every good work. The word of God is crucial. The, 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 the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the feet, fitted with, uh, the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, that all comes from where? The Bible, the scriptures. The word is crucial. I would probably argue that we wouldn't mind losing any part of our equipment as long as we could keep our sword. Yeah. The sword's kind of crucial. I would not want to lose my sword right. in battle. And a lot of times... We show up every day into the world unequipped, ill-equipped. And then we get mad, mad at God because temptation comes. We get mad at God. We blame God because temptation comes. Whereas he's equipped us with his strength. We just got to put it on. And so let's be like Christ and put on the strength of God. Read your Bible in the morning. Know what the scripture means. Now, I don't know what that looks like. It's a relationship with you and God. Do your own thing. That might be reading 10 chapters a day. It might be reading one verse and just reading it over and over again until you kind of get it. But Jesus was equipped. God loves us. And a, a father who loves his son disciplines his son. And a father who loves his daughter, or a parent who loves their kid, will discipline their kid. That's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews. Discipline means God loves us. God wants us to be strong. He doesn't want us to wander out into the world. None of us would do that. None of us would say, you need to let your two-year-old really be independent and you know, let, him, let him off into the world. And, you know, we'd say, no, that, that's not very loving. And, and so with your two-year-old, you teach them 
And as they get older, you kind of let them move a little bit further away from the nest, gradually. So they can learn, so that when they leave, they're ready. They're equipped for the world. God wants the same for us. He wants us to be equipped. Temptation doesn't mean he hates us. Temptation means he loves us. But he wants us to respond. He's given us everything we need to respond to. Now, I want to encourage us. We don't have to be perfect in this regard. We're not. We have to accept that. Christ didn't come primarily as an example. He did come as an example, but not primarily as an example. Christ came primarily as a savior. And so we have Christ's righteousness. And so praise God for Christ here, standing up in the, in, in, in the desert against Satan. We have Christ's righteousness if we've chosen to repent, have faith, in, and get baptized. We have it. And so now we're actually armed with the security of that to be able to go out and say, you know what? If I fail, amen. But I'm, I'm going to try my best not to. I'm going to try my best to love God back. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to be reliable. Because it's not just me either. It's the, other, it's the other people in the phalanx. You know, Christ was intentional with God and people. We've got we to inten- put on the armor, right? We can't just walk through our day and hope the armor falls on top of us somehow. You know, and maybe I'll roll and it'll, it'll connect or something. But we've got to put on the armor. It's active. We've got to be active in this regard. We've got to be active in our quiet times. We've got to be active in our discipling. We've got to be active in prayer. You know, there's no obvious disconnect in Ephesians between the armor passage and the prayer passage. Do you see that? He's like, put on the armor. Get it all on. Satan's coming. The, the arrows are flaming. They're going to get you. They're going to they're destroy us. They're going to divide us. They're gonna, they're, but the phalanx has got to stick together. We've got to pray. We've got to stay vigilant. Pray for everybody. Pray for me too because I've got a hard situation going on. We've got to keep praying. Everyone pray. And it's that, it's that, that fire in, in Paul. That it's all connected. We've got to be intentional about it though. We've got to be intentional about it. I love Paul's humility too. Pray for me because I'm having a hard time too here. I'm writing this letter to you, but I, help me out. I'm in a tough spot. You know, in Luke 5, it says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. That was part of who he was. If the Son of God needed to do it, perhaps we do as well. Christ was intentional about outreach in Luke 19. He tells Zacchaeus, you're having me over for dinner tonight. He was intentional about it. He said, I'm going to come over. If you're gonna, let's, let's eat. But he's intentional about his outreach. He had, a, he had a plan. He was intentional about vulnerability. He brought the disciples along in Matthew 26, 36. And he said, stay here while I pray. And he was, he was real. He was honest about how he was feeling. Vulnerability is communicating a, a weakness and a need. Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm weak right now. The spirit is w- uh, willing, but the body is weak. Christ was intentional about it. He had a plan to do it. A lot of us, we just kind of hope these things happen. And when they do, we're surprised at the painful trial we suffer. But to be intentional, that we are in a battle. We've got to show up, put on the armor, and stand firm. Mm-hmm. And the last one is discipling. Jesus was intentional about his discipling. Something like, uh, this is what a brother shared with me recently, something like 75% of what Jesus says in the Gospels is with the intention of training somebody else. Three-fourths of what Jesus is here for, i got to train these guys. i got to train them. i got to teach them. Matthew 10, he sends them out on a little internship. He says, go, go preach the Gospels. Go to the Jews, preach to them. Gentiles will be next. Here's some plans. Let me know how it goes. I'm going to be all, I don't know what he did. Jesus is like, i got other stuff to do, but get back to me. Let me know. I'll give you some feedback about how it went. 
You know, are, we, are we intentional in, in these ways? Christ was intentional. He had to put on the full armor of God. Christ came down with this explicit purpose. Christ is the only person in the history of the world to know about his birth ahead of time, to go in knowing how vastly difficult it will be, to know that no one's done it before. But he came anyway. He did it anyway. He put on the full armor of God. He kept being friends with these guys, these apostles. If anyone had reason to disqualify people for friendship, it was Christ. (laughs) These guys were a ragtag group. They were a motley crew. But Jesus is constantly not giving up on them. You know, we can give up on our friends really easily because they didn't say the right word to us that one time and and we, we now are mean to them or we give them a cold shoulder or we get them back with some revenge and how we treat them. And, you know, Christ didn't give up. Christ said, I'm coming to put on the full armor and I'm coming to stand shoulder to shoulder. If we do these two things, church, if we're able to do these two things, to put on the armor and stand shoulder to shoulder, the phalanx will never lose. The church, the gates of Hades will not overcome us. Nothing can stand. Uh, no angel nor demon, uh, height nor uh, depth nor power, any ruler or authority can overcome the love of God and the plan of God. All we've got to do is put on the armor and to stand shoulder to shoulder, to be together. Unity is so crucial. There are 59 one another passages in the New Testament. 59 verses that say, one another. How many verses talk about grace? How many verses talk about baptism? How many verses talk about repentance? I would imagine a fair amount, but I don't know that it's 59 times. There's only two things in the New Testament where the, the Bible tells us to do it daily. Deny yourself and carry your cross and to encourage one another. Only two things. Deny yourself and carry your cross, a.k.a. be a disciple. And encourage one another. That word means to lift them up. The word encourage is great. The word encourage is parakaleo. The word for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. They're very similar. The word for encourage is to come alongside someone and strengthen them. Now, it could be through comforting them. It could be through urging them forward. But to come alongside someone, get down to their level. Don't speak down to them. Don't speak up to them. Come alongside. Come alongside them and encourage them. To encourage each other. And this happens a lot. You know, people get baptized. They become disciples. They become part of the church. And they're like, man, people just keep nagging me about coming to stuff. And Well, yeah. That's not us, by the way. It's God. God's nagging you. You got a problem with that? Amen. But this is the challenge for the whole church is to encourage each other daily. That this is actually what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, the two things. We see the Spirit everywhere in this passage. The Holy Spirit... A, primarily, is the word of God, which is the Spirit, right? So if we read, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to work. Just reading your Bible is allowing the Holy Spirit to work. Because you're hopefully thinking, am I doing this? Oh my goodness, I'm not convicted. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I gotta change. That's the Holy Spirit. The second thing is to actually encourage somebody else is to listen to the Spirit. That's the Spirit's primary job is to come alongside as an advocate, as a comforter, as a strengthener. That may look different. We're going to make mistakes for sure. But I want to encourage this church. Are we doing this? Are we standing side by side with each other? You know, this is the Blue Ridge Church, right? We're not the biggest church by any means, right? And so what's cool about that is that we get a chance to actually love between the ministries. 
you're a campus student, you get a chance to be able to talk to some, some married guy. You know, you could probably, even if you were so brave, ask him how he was doing spiritually or how his quiet times were or what he's working on in this year's theme. Um, you know, transformation by the Holy Spirit. You could ask him. You could talk. You could be able to bond and connect and be able to have friendships because we've got to stand shoulder to shoulder. We've got to be together. Christ was the Son of God, and he was rarely alone. If he was alone, he came back. There were times when he was intentionally alone. He withdrew, right, and came back. But he's, he's it's almost always with people. Almost always with people. And for us, they go, we do a lot in the church. We have a, lot, we have a schedule that's packed. We do a lot of stuff. We try to live the scripture out. We know everybody can't make it to everything, but that's okay because we got grace. Fair enough, right? I mean, you, you can't make it. But when we, when we do come to things, if we, if we all had this mindset yeah. to come alongside, how you doing? How can I pray for you? It doesn't mean you have the answers. None of us have the answers. I don't have the answers. I lead the church, okay? I don't have the answers. You don't have to have the answers either. You just got to come alongside and love them. Yeah. Yeah. Love them. How can I pray? How can I help? Maybe I could text you tomorrow, man. Can I call you tomorrow? You want to get lunch? You know, but to, to love each other. We crave it. We need it. For like life, we need to be fulfilled. And that happens through standing shoulder to shoulder. If Jesus did it, let's follow that example. If God himself is, 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 is three in one, perhaps we need others. Jesus was with God in the beginning. They were together. Christ is in the Old Testament all over the place. Christ is there. God's got, together there's unity in helping each other to help someone out of the the, the muck and the mire, to get down into the slimy pit with them. We all need that. We all need that. And to close out, when we think about a lesson like this, I can get excited. It's often, you can get excited about a lesson. Yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to stand firm. We're going to be able to bring it on. You know, but the the radical nature of this text does not occur today, but it occurs this Thursday or this Friday or next month. But for us to have convictions as a church to be resilient and reliable, if we all can be resilient and reliable, just like the Greek phalanx would have been, we can trust and not in our own strength, but in that brother standing next to you, that sister standing next to you as she's there's a lot of people in this room who are going through a lot. Just to get here to church. There are people in this room who are going through an inordinate amount of struggle per week. But they're here. They're holding up their shield. Doesn't that inspire you? Doesn't that inspire you? There's people, I wish I could list them all. There's so many in this room who do so much just to get there to the laurels last Thursday. Just to get to I was hungry to serve the poor. Just to come on Wednesdays after work and you're kind of dragging and your kid just threw a fit. But you're here. You're holding your shield up. And guess what? It's not any normal shield. It's going to extinguish those flaming arrows. That shield puts them out. You know, in ancient times, they actually would soak their shield sometimes in leather. Uh, the leather would be soaked in water. And then the flaming arrow would come and be extinguished. Then we got a shield of faith. Faith is the best defense against that. There's people in this room holding up their shields. Does it inspire you? And God's given us everything we need to follow suit. How awesome is it that you don't have to be strong enough? It should have, oh, Amen. Amen, because I, I can't do it. You can't, but let's put on his strength. Let's put on Christ's strength. Let's be there together. Let's be open together. Let's be vulnerable together. Let's be tenacious together. Let's not give up in meeting together. Let's encourage each other daily. Let's be there with each other 
daily. And just like the Greek phalanx, you know, as a thousand nations of the Persian Empire descended upon them, there's vast numbers in that narrow corridor. A couple hundred Greeks lined up. They stood shoulder to shoulder. And as the Persians said, lay down your armor. Get rid of your armor. They realized how powerful the armor was. And so does Satan. Satan wants each and every one of us to lay down our armor. Let's not do it. And every time Satan says that, every time Satan says, lay down your weapons, we can all yell back in unison, come and get them. Come and get it. We're not laying it down. Because you know what? There's this brother next to me, this sister next to me. I'm holding up my shield for her. I'm holding up my shield for him. And we're going to trust in God as our strength. In Christ as our strength, as our example. That he's already lived the life. We don't have to live it. All we have to do is stand firm. All we have to do is stand after we've done everything to just stand. Don't give up. Never, never, never quit. Never give up. And if we can do this, and we can, because it's his strength. We can all stand shoulder to shoulder with his armor on and respond to Satan. Come and get them. Amen. To God be the glory.